Hello and welcome to the Bloodstream Podcast, a show serving the greater bleeding disorders community, brought to you by Believe Limited and Bloodstream Media and made possible by our presenting sponsor, Takeda. I am your patient advocate and host, Patrick James Lynch. Hey, I am that other healthcare advocate, nonprofit nerd, and your other host, Amy Board, reminding you to please speak with a healthcare professional before making any treatment decisions. Any at all. Don't just listen to us and do things. On today's show, Amy and I talk HR 5801. You know, good old (laughs) HR 5801. That's it? That's all we're going to give him? Just HR 5801? This is the introduction. We're going to get into it later, but that's the the headline. You're right. HR 5801. You're right. That's coming up later. This is just the intro. (laughs) We'll also hear from Sarah Watson, the new co-host of Flow, Bloodstream Media's podcast on menstrual health and extreme periods. We'll hear from Dr. Donna Kelly, the former deputy director of the Division of Blood Diseases and Resources within the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute at the National Institutes of Health. There's a title for you. Dang. (laughs) She's Louise. Very important. (laughs) Now a retired consultant working in hemophilia and a senior advisor on the Global Hemophilia Report. We haven't talked about the Global Hemophilia Report on this here show. No, we have not. That is correct, That's Amy exciting. Board. I know, I know. So that's coming up pretty quickly here. And then Blood Brother Jim Mueller of Oklahoma. Amy, were you ever in the Oklahoma the show? That's triggering because I was in that show not once, not twice, three times. Oh, wow. Okay. I played Ado Annie twice. Wow, I'm sorry. It wasn't a good experience? No, or? it was a f- fantastic experience. Okay. That's that's another show. That's a whole nother thing. It's like another podcast. It's like a series. That doesn't belong in the Bloodstream podcast, you don't think? Uh, well, 10 bucks, we're going to get a bunch of people calling in being like, you should talk about it. Mailbag at bloodstreammedia.com. <laughs> uh, so Jim from Oklahoma, not the musical, but the state, <laughs> he joins the show to talk some financial health and planning. We have got all of that and more today on a jam-packed episode of the Bloodstream Podcast. Hey, listeners, thank you for listening. And remember, hit that subscribe button on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Episodes can also be listened to and shared directly from the Bloodstream Media Facebook page. How about that? I, it's amazing, the technology. And as always, if you've got suggestions for topics or guests, or if you want me to talk about my experience in Oklahoma, the please, musical. Please, encourage her. Please ping us on social media or email us at mailbag at bloodstreammedia.com. Amy Board is also on LinkedIn. And listeners, <laughs> I want to remind you that the Bloodstream podcast is made possible by our presenting sponsor, Takeda. Yes, that's right, Takeda. Takeda. Takeda's got this website, you may have heard of it, bleedingdisorders.com, where you can learn all about Takeda's resources for and commitment to the bleeding disorders community. Takeda believes in a world free of bleeds ah, and are dedicated more than ever in their efforts to offer a wide range of programs and support to help patients throughout their treatment journey, wherever on that journey they may be. You can learn more by simply visiting bleedingdisorders.com. One more time, though I doubt it's necessary, bleedingdisorders.com. And for their founding and ongoing support of the Bloodstream Podcast, again, I would just like to say, thanks, Takeda. I got it. I have to ask. Yeah, right we off, have to here start we go. the show. I have to check in with the ankle. This is fair. This makes a lot of if sense. If you haven't listened to last episode, stop. Maybe do a pause. You could do a pause. Yeah, and go come back. back, and then and then you can go in. But tell me, where are you? Where Where's your life? Wow, it's been a two weeks. Um, <laughs> turns out when you say something on a podcast, people who listen, uh, I let knew you. they would. So I've had a lot of information come my way. A lot I've also of now had. A 
couple few weeks of this cortisone shot sure, sure. working in my ankle. So to start there, that's going really well. I mean, the quality of life difference, this is one of those I can't unknow sort of things. Yeah, yeah. I can't go back to the lived experience I had of just tolerating pain and disability because this has been, I mean, getting up in the middle of the night, Vivian's had a bunch of sleep stuff. She's got teeth breaking in all over the place. She's up at all hours. Being able to pop out of bed and get her as opposed to like, my Ebenezer, like, yeah, and trying to like wake the ankle up, taking a step, something's getting pinched. I'm in severe pain. It's 2.30 in the morning. I haven't even gotten to the baby yet. Now I'm just like, you know, Johnny on the spot. I'm popping out of bed and flying over to places. I can walk the dog in the morning without having to wake my body up in weird ways. I can't go back. So the thing that I'm now bracing for is like, how long is this injection going to have enduring impact? Because these things aren't meant to last ad infinitum. You know, you have to— how many can you have in a year? How many will they give you? Well, therein lies the trick. The so, rub? Yeah. Um, you know, there's, I guess there's, this isn't a settled issue, but I know plenty of people who have been getting three or four of these a year for some well over a decade. Mm. And it doesn't correct, and I think we talked about this, it doesn't inherently correct damage that's done. And it's, it, I appreciate that there's like stuff to be addressed, right. but if it's working really well. And I'm not inclined in a couple of months to get ankle surgery. So that's kind of where I am right now is like, I don't think that's happening in the next eight to 12 weeks. I've also been introduced to this idea of um, stem cell therapies and and platelet-rich plasma injections. I got a bunch of information sent to me from another blood brother, Tommy. Shouts out to Tommy uh, Rusumano. And uh, I got a lot to read and ingest. <laughs> My mother's also been absorbing oh, a ton sure, of information, sure. giving me mama's capsule. Oh, so I'm in, I guess, the information gathering stage still while tracking to see, all right, am I continuing to feel like this cortisone shot is working? So that's the latest and the greatest is like, I'm doing very well. Thank you, by the way, to everybody who is sending stuff mm-hmm. in and who've had fusions done and have had them for 20 years. But are, you know, some people, I had it on this ankle and not this one, but I'm thinking about it. And here's all... Like a lot of good stuff coming in that remind me, reminds me of all the options that exist. So that's where I'm at. I'm feeling good and gathering info. That's so great. We'll ki- we'll continue to check in. Please continue to uh, write in. Uh, yeah, do. Ping Patrick Please. on social. I mean, this is like an ongoing conversation, obviously. And uh, yeah, we'll start to um, build what the conversation is. And if you have questions yeah. about this for me or in general that yeah. you would like to throw into this conversation, mailbag at bloodstreammedia.com. Reach out to me or the show on one of the social platforms. And that's, uh, yeah, so that's where the check-in is. We have so much to get to, though, so I want to leave it there for now, and cool, cool. we will be coming back to it. Um, also, Tribeca Communications. We talked about this kind of a thing a few months ago, these patient um, surveys where— Basically, your opinion is what's needed to help with yes. some research initiatives. Market and research, it's your, it's all about your opinion. So Tribeca Communications, they are currently recruiting people who are 18 years and older with moderate to severe hemophilia A and the caregivers of children ages 1 to 17 with hemophilia A without active inhibitors, without. To be part of this market research survey, you'll be asked to complete a 40-minute online questionnaire related to the management of hemophilia, and you will be compensated 80 bucks for your time. I can't quite figure out. So what, that's what, four, that's not $40. And that's 40 minutes, $80. I can't figure out what that hourly is, but it's pretty good. If you do the math, it's probably great. Uh, if you're interested in participating, please email George 
Polakis, George, I apologize if I'm butchering your last name. I've known you for like 15 years, but I don't say your last name a whole lot in my life. George Polakis, more importantly for this, his email address, three initials, GJP. You know how much I like initials, especially if there's three of them. GJP at Tribeca, T-R-I-B-E-C-A. Com. Oh, right. TribecaCommunications.com. Okay, I get it now. We're all on this journey together. <laughs> GJP at TribecaCom.com. GJP at TribecaCom.com will also be a link in the program, in the program notes, notes for the love of everything. <laughs> oh, my God. Like, as we were going through that, I was like, well, obviously, we'll put this in the program notes. <laughs> no one's going to know what you just said. No we'll one's going to write this notes. down. It's fine. <laughs> it's fine. All right. So that's what's going on with Tribeca Communications. So if you're interested in that, reach out, check the program notes. Uh, we got legislation news. HR 5801. Woo! Amy, oh my what gosh. Is that? It is a thing. Um so everybody's gearing up for Washington Days, which is our big um national lobbying day um mm-hmm. in Washington DC, which is super fun. Um obviously hosted and coordinated and all the things by the National Hemophilia Foundation. This year, I'm sure you guys have seen the scuttlebutt. There is um a bill that actually is going to um, address the copay accumulator adjustment programs, which we have heard about forever. Endless issue. That directly affect hemophilia patients, um, for sure. Um, all of those copays, um, it's a big deal. So, um, if you are interested in what's hearing— What's the skinny of that? I'm sorry to interrupt you, no. Amy, but for people who maybe haven't listened or don't remember, what's like the two, three-sentence version of why— that? What What is this? What is a, I don't know what a copay accumulator adjustment— What the heck does that even mean? For sure. Um, as, as most of us know, um, in order to afford our clotting factor, um, especially in the beginning of the year, the pharmaceutical companies have um, started a copay card um, system mm-hmm. where they will actually pay— um, towards your deductibles um, of your insurance in order to get your factor. What insurance companies have started to do as a cost-saving measure is they have not included those payments, so they've taken them. They've taken these copay They're happy cards. to receive the money for like the first three months until your deductible is met, but it doesn't go towards your deductible. How convenient. So, you know, a third of the way into the year, all of a sudden you get this surprise bill. Um, So it's been a, it's, you know, it's one of those cost-saving measures that's hidden in, you know, um, the fine print. Um, It's not transparent. So- And um, where the squeeze is ultimately felt by patients and caregivers. That's the thing that enrages me is these cost-saving measures around the margins where the pain is felt by patients and caregivers. Wrong direction, folks. Yes. Um, there is a phenomenal conversation with um, uh, Colette Culianos on the Ask the Expert podcast yeah. that we will link in the program notes that gives a really good These overview. These program notes are going to be chock full of good stuff for you this, <laughs> this episode. So if you're interested about this issue, if you haven't heard about it before, uh, check out that episode. It's phenomenal. Very Actually valuable. hear from a hemophilia patient that this has happened to. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, there is a there is a bill that is now being introduced in the House. It's called um, the Health help ensure lower co-pays act, lower patient co-pays act. Um, and it's going to be, it's, at the moment, it's got about a dozen bipartisan co-sponsors. That's a good um, sign. So, you know, it's gaining momentum. Um, and I'm sure that this is going to be a topic of conversation for Washington Day. So we're so excited oh, about sure. that. We just wanted to um, introduce it here on the show. And we're going to follow. We're going to 
follow its trajectory. We're going to follow the trajectory of HR 5801. For sure. Uh, Washington Days, March 1st and 2nd, as Amy said, hosted by the National Hemophilia Foundation. Go to hemophilia.org, check out the events tab, and learn more about Washington Days if you are interested. And then the last thing that Amy and I are going to chat out, chat about here at the top, it is February 11th. Which is? My mom's birthday. Oh. Happy birthday, Susan. Happy birthday, Susan. Mama Sue, love Aww. you. But it's also International Women and Girls in Science Day. Yes! And my mom is a registered nurse, so there's a tie-in. Yes! Uh, Amy, we were chatting a little bit about this yesterday, but I have for a long time been aware of how many, just an hour world of yeah. bleeding disorders yeah. and even getting smaller, the hemophilia world. Yeah. Carol Casper, Judith Graham Poole, uh, Marilyn Manko Johnson. Johnson. There are... Men, Amy Shapiro. Yes. I could keep going, and if I keep going, then I, you know, who you leave out becomes a thing. So I better stop there. <laughs> but there are a ton of women who have made major contributions yes. to progressing the science in hemophilia, and you know, and who work tirelessly for patients. Oh, absolutely. And I, I mean, I can so speak cool. firsthand to that with Dr. D. McKelly, who we'll yes. hear from in a couple of minutes. In addition to her fancy job that she used to have at the NIH and what she's doing now with the Global Hemophilia Report. She was my doctor, yeah. you know, as a kid, like yeah. my doctor and the person that my mother and my grandmother and my brother and I, and even all the other clinicians in our clinic, like the person who, when they walked in the room, all eyes went to Dr. Donna D. McKelly. So I've long had, a, I don't know, a connection, and a, an affinity, a trust in women in positions of authority in hemophilia science. Yeah. And a lot of it for me goes directly to Dr. D. McKelly. Absolutely. I think this is a cool, it's a, it's a you know, hemophilia and, um, you know, their contributions aside, I think this is a, um, this is a wonderful thing to celebrate today. Um, I think women and girls coming up in science, it's a, it's a field that is hard to break into. There's a lot of stigma, um, uh, involved in it. And so to celebrate it today, to celebrate um, the women that have uh, pioneered through that, mm. that have had to work not only to um, get to where they are, but to have to prove their smarts and their worthiness of being there. Mm. Um, bravo. And to all of the girls and the young women that um, our science nerds that want to get involved, especially in this age where science is becoming such a um, a global conversation, both for good and for bad. It is such mm. an important thing. And how wonderful that these people just want to um, figure out the unknown and how cool yeah. that is. And, and it, especially in medicine for the betterment of patients. So bravo. I love this day and I love that we're talking about it. And, um, and I just think it's really cool going back um, to Dr. D. McKelly, I just think it's really cool that uh, we have her. We have we we have this day. On this day, we get to introduce the Global Hemophilia Report. Yeah, so let's do just that. And Dr. D. McKelly and I are gonna gonna hear us chat for a few minutes in just a minute or two. But in short, the Global Hemophilia Report monthly podcast, driven by science, curiosity, and storytelling, into the research and initiatives and people that are really leading uh, hemophilia-related research and driving it forward today and into the future. Our first episode, which premiered yesterday on February 10th, is on inhibitors. Uh, Dr. D. McKelly is the senior advisor to the Global Hemophilia Report. She's also one of the contributors to that episode. And she joins me now in this little baby conversation to talk a bit more about the Global Hemophilia Report and her role right now. 
I'm joined now by someone I have known most of my life, who has been with me for some of the most important moments of my life, and who was my pediatric hematologist until 20-something years old. We all know how the pediatric of pediatric hematologists can stretch a little bit from time to time in certain clinics with certain patients. I'm joined by Dr. D. McKelly, Dr. Donna D. McKelly, I should say. Dr. D. McKelly, thanks for joining me. How are you? Oh, I'm great. And what a pleasure to be talking to you, Patrick. <laughs> it is a unique honor. I, I didn't know that this day would ever come. I, it was cool to get to interview you for Bombardier Blood. That was that was a real, that was a moment for me. But now getting to work on this other project with you is, uh, is a unique privilege. But before we talk about that for a moment, um, can you just give our audience and people who know you, know of you, have heard your name, just a little bit of an update? How is life after the clinic and the lab and NIH, NIH treating you? What are, what are you up to? What's keeping you busy? Well, uh, that, thank you for asking that question. Actually, after I left uh, the uh, National Institutes of Health in, in, uh, in the beginning of 2020, um, I have really been working and having a great time working back in the hemophilia and, hemoph and uh, hematology communities and, and you know, hematology in general and hemophilia specifically with organizations such as the American Society of Hematology and the National Hemophilia Foundation and academic institutes and small biotech. And all of it has really been focused on doing exactly what I wanted to do. And that was to bring my academic experience and my NIH experience together to really try to stimulate research and workforce development back in the fields of hematology and hemophilia. So in other words, you know, really stimulate the research environment and really stimulate careers in hematology and in hemophilia so that we could really draw the best of the best, you know, talent to care for uh, individuals who need, you know, hematological care and, and bleeding disorder care. And so it's not like I'm doing this myself, but being able to partner with major organizations who are like-minded and who are working in this area has really uh, been a blast and really, you know, something that's uh, been near and dear to my heart. And, and so getting a chance to do it has been a great privilege. So important to that piece you mentioned about drawing talent into our field. I know that's something that's always been cited as a challenge and, and, and difficult for a number of reasons. So it's encouraging to hear that that's been uh, a focus of yours. Tell me what made you interested in working with me as you are the senior advisor on the Global Hemophilia Report. What made you interested in working on the Global Hemophilia Report? Well, uh, you know, first of all, I was honored uh, to have been asked, and it is such a great um, pleasure to work with you, Patrick. You know how proud I've been of you and all the work that you're doing in the hemophilia community. And I thought that th this project was particularly interesting because it is focused on research. And it's focused on research in some of the most important areas uh, related to hemophilia. And the idea of really bringing the voices of basic scientists, uh, clinical researchers, clinicians, caregivers, persons with hemophilia themselves to speak about the most pressing questions and how those questions either are being addressed or where the gaps are and 
that need to be addressed in future research. And I think that this is a very, very important area to be working in at the moment. The first episode on inhibitors went live yesterday for those listening in real time on February 10th and is available now wherever you listen to podcasts. You can look up the Global Hemophilia Report or visit bloodstreammedia.com and check out the show page to listen to episode one on inhibitors. I don't want to step on the content necessarily, Dr. Kelly, but inhibitors and inhibitor research, uh, as, as you know, I had an inhibitor. You've dedicated a lot of your career to the research and understanding of inhibitors. What about inhibitor research in 2022 are you most excited about? Well, yeah, you know, Patrick, that's a really good question because a lot of the research in inhibitors heretofore has really been directed at preventing or treating inhibitors, largely because the impact on patients with hemoph- particularly hemophilia A who've developed inhibitors has been so tremendous in terms of their overall health and particularly their muscus- musculoskeletal health that optimizing treatment, finding ways around inhibitors, trying to eradicate inhibitors, trying to understand the immunology of inhibitors has really been the focus of, let's say, the last you know 30 years, maybe even 40 years of research. Now, the treatment landscape has changed. Mm-hmm. And individuals with inhibitors, because of licensed drugs like emicizumab and some other drugs that are coming down the pike, now have more effective treatment than ever even in the presence of an inhibitor. And so the question is, is why is inhibitor research still relevant? Why is it still important to understand the immunology of inhibitors, how they develop, why they develop in certain individuals, maybe, and not in others, and how we eradicate them? Why is that still important, uh, given that you know, the clinical implications have really drastically changed for the better. And I think that's what the first episode is really concentrating on. You know, why is this still an important question? And given that it's still an important question, where is the research going? And how has the research significantly changed when anywhere from basic scientists and clinical scientists are thinking about understanding and studying inhibitors. So I think that's what makes that episode really exciting. And to get answers to some of those questions that Dr. Kelly just posited, you will have to listen to the Global Hemophilia Report out now wherever you listen to podcasts once again. And I'd like to thank our featured advertiser, Sanofi Genzyme, for their support on that. Dr. Kelly, I expect we may have you back here on Bloodstream to talk about the Global Hemophilia Report a little bit later in the year, and we have a few more episodes out and have some feedback from people. But for now, I just want to thank you again for agreeing to be a part of this journey with me. I did not anticipate that we would be colleagues in content production. Didn't see that one coming, but it's uh, we'll call it an unexpected joy of 2022. So thank you for being my partner on this. And I couldn't have said it better. Thank you for bringing me along on this. And I know that, you know, thanks to the work that you and your team are doing, folks out there who are interested in, in hemophilia research are going to have a lot to look forward to. Episode one of the Global Hemophilia Report from Bloodstream Media is on inhibitors and is available right now. Subscribe to Global Hemophilia Report on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you, dear listener, 
listen to podcasts. Thank you to Dr. Dima Kelly, Senior Advisor on GHR. That's what we call here in the inside, GHR. <laughs> and thanks as well to Sanofi Genzyme, Featured Advertiser on GHR. Oh, God. And from the Global Hemophilia Report, there you go, I gave it back to you, over <laughs> to another Bloodstream Media show, Flow. Amy Flow. Ward, Flow producer. What do we need to know about this interview with Sarah? We have a new co-host. Sarah Watson is our new co-host, and she has the coolest resume. She is a uh, bleeding disorder patient. Right. She's a sex therapist. Right. She's a lady. Right. She also, her That's whole great story. Resume piece. I know. She's a lady. <laughs> resume that. But the fourth one is most important. Her whole journey into this world began where? at hemophilia camp where everything begins. That is very true. That is very true. All right, well, here we go. Amy's chat with Flow co-host, Sarah Watson. I am here with Sarah Watson. She is a member of the bleeding disorder community, a sex therapist, and drum roll, please, the new co-host of Flow. Sarah, welcome to Bloodstream. It's your first time on Bloodstream, is that correct? It is. Thank you so much for having me, Amy. I'm so excited. I am excited too. I'm excited too. I, I guess like before we like jump into it, we kind of found you through, I don't know, different channels, but what did you immediately kind of become attached to Flow? Like what, what made you want to do the show? T tell me a little bit about that journey for you. Oh, yeah. Thanks. That's a good question. I, one, was so excited to hear that you all were doing a podcast about flowing, right? Like about periods. And because it's such a topic, whether you're in the bleeding disorder community or not, that is, I believe, underrepresented and we don't talk about it. We just don't talk about it. Don't. Yes. And I was like, you're talking about it? I'm in. Like you, like there was... I'm in. I was all about it. So I, you know, that's part of my personal mission, right? Is to talk about the things we don't talk about. So periods, sexual health, sexual education, women and bleeding disorders, which is now being talked about, but that it makes my heart sing. That's so great. Tell me, and uh, tell me, of course I know, but uh, tell the listeners a little bit about your background. How'd you get into what you're into? Tell us a little bit about your trajectory. Yeah. So I'm a woman with a bleeding disorder. Um, I've known that since I was about nine, I think I was nine months old, but it's, you know, obviously we know how it's passed and there's lots of bleeders in my family. So it's no surprise. Um, and I start with this part of my story because it leads to how I got here. And I was an active participant in our summer camp here in Michigan for women with bleed or for kids with bleeding disorders, worked there, was a camper there and really found myself there, really mm -hmm. found my passion of just connecting with others and listening, whether it was to campers or to my colleagues and my best friends now, to be honest with you, and meeting, honestly, meeting people that were able to introduce me to others that, um, like I met my best girlfriend, Jessica Foley there, and her dad used to run our summer camp in the 70s. And her mom is a well, well-known sex therapist who ended up chatting with me saying, oh, this is what you're, you want to work with couples? Well, this is what you're going to do. And literally sat down with me for three hours and mapped out a, a life plan, honestly. Oh my goodness. And handed me a stack of books and said, you're coming to the University of Michigan program. You have to apply and <laughs> you have to do all the things, but like, this is what you should do. And she was a mentor and still is and a supervisor. And it's literally because of my connection with 
her daughter, Jessica, and that kind of led me here. And it's through asking for help too. Like I like to make that really clear in my story is I asked Jess for help saying, hey, who does your mom know? And she was like, that just just dominoed into this long conversation with Sally and got me here. And just listening to people's stories about sexual health issues. Definitely, I talk often about menstruation with my clients. And so that's a little bit about how I ended up you know, in the, in the therapy chair, if you will. And tell me, and this is, this is my ignorance. What Mm. is the difference between, um, counseling and sex therapy? Are there similarities? Are there differences? Tell me a little bit about the difference of that. Yeah, sure. So they're very similar. So counseling is, so it's a master's level. So you have to get your graduate degree. You're getting your master's in counseling. And so, um, I'm a lot, and this varies state to state. So I'm going to try to you know, explain it you know, in my way, but this may not be exactly the same for someone in California or Colorado. So here in Michigan, where I'm based, I'm a licensed professional counselor. And then you can go out and do therapy. Um, that's, and you can see anyone, you can do anything. Um, but through the graduate program, you're just really given kind of the basics of a lot of different things and you're not specialized in anything. Mm. And so sex therapy is a specialization after you get a certain amount of experience and you do, I did a post, um, postgraduate certification through the university of Michigan. And then it's another, you're paying for the program. You also have to do supervision. You have to see a certain amount of sex therapy clients, but sex therapy is just like regular counseling. You're coming to see me virtually currently, and we're just chatting about sexual health. And I just have the information that most clinicians do not have. And I'm Mm -hmm. also very open and you're not going to shock me, um, which people tend to hold back. They're like, Ooh, I said that. And the therapist made a face or they made a sigh and they're, they're not going to talk about sex with me. And I'm the opposite. I want to talk about all of those things. That's great. Going back, you know, I love that your story started with summer camp with Camp Old Eagle. Yeah. Um, that's wonderful. Tell me a little bit about your personal experience as a woman in the bleeding disorder community. What has it been like for you in particular as a woman? So I have to back that up, right? So as, as a child, because <laughs> it's always been, right? It's always been part of my life. It's never been something I haven't known, which is not always a case for other women in the community, right? So often I've heard those stories and I'm sure you have of women finding out um, after they give birth or when they start their period and what's going on and, and what happens. So I've had the privilege, I guess, of knowing since before I could walk. And so that has really shaped me. Obviously, the um, HIV AIDS hepatitis crisis and moment in our history shaped me greatly. I lost two, I lost my grandfather and my uncle during that time when I was, I was not, I was eight and 12. So very formative years where Mm. I'm understanding that my Mm -hmm. family has this disease and this is what's happening. And and HIV wasn't a scary thing to me, but we know at that point in the, in the eighties and nineties, it was very scary to the world, but I was the girl going in with my family's story on like the local paper, scaring the crap out of my, (laughs) my teacher in fifth grade being like, here's my family. You know, my grandpa just died and my uncle just died of of AIDS. Obviously I know they don't die of AIDS, but like complications from, and, and it really kind of, it kind of was an interesting thing to understand in that moment of not everyone was going to be accepting, which is really, really not easy to digest as a, as a young woman. And then having my own experience with bruises everywhere, bloody noses constantly. I missed a lot of class time by being in the bathroom 
just gushing, having nosebleeds, gushing, gushing, gushing. And thankfully, my my period was not awful when I started it. Um, but I am the bruise queen. There are times people are like, "What happened to you?" <laughs> and I'm like, "I'll be like, what do you mean?" And they're like, "Do you see that? You have a giant bruise on your leg." And I'll be like, "Oh, I didn't even know. Like, <laughs> I just didn't yeah. know, right?" So, yeah. and then also going into dating and partnership. Uh, and having to be the person that informs my partner about yes. what you're getting into. And if you're with me in the long haul, like what that could be for yes. our family. So it's been, it's always been a part of my life and it's always something I'm, I'm conscious of. And then some days I don't think about it at all. So it's really interesting. Why do you think flow and programs like flow are so essential for our community. And I guess I, I use the word community mm-hmm. broadly because I, I do think of the bleeding disorder community, but I also think just like the larger community of women who especially experience extreme periods. Why is it so essential? Well, I, first off, I'll go back to the point we talked about before is that we don't talk about it, right? Like generally what we're getting at, from what I understand currently at, at um, the regular education or typical, sorry, not regular, typical education is like, you're going to have, you know, the, the puberty talk, right? You get that generally in fifth grade, you get the sex talk in ninth grade, and then that's it. And, and we know that girls are starting menstruation much earlier and they're getting some information maybe from a parent, but it's all about like, this is how you take care of it. Not what does it mean? What's it going to look like? What's going to happen to your body before and after, um, how it's going to fluctuate depending on your level acti- of activity and that it's normal. It can be, can be nice depending on like where you come from, right? <laughs> depending right. on your situation. And I think to normalize that this is something that most people, women go through and, and let's bring it to the forefront. Let's not be ashamed. Let's not be the people teaching our daughters or menstruators to hide tampons up their sleeve. Let's teach, you know, the the non-menstruators to it's totally fine to be carrying around a tampon or a pad for your friend at school. Right? And it's it's not it's not something we need to hide and be ashamed of. I agree. How do you think your sex therapy practice has affected your views on menstrual health kind of on a whole? Well, good question. That I mean, hugely is that Again, we don't talk about it and uh, menstruation specifically. And I've um, I've had clients show up and be frustrated with their partner because their partner is having quality of life issues due to PMS or their um, their cycle or ovulation, and not having the understanding of it's going to be a wide variety of symptoms and things are going to happen and it could be different every month for your partner, but they're just angry that that partner doesn't want to have sex with them or wants to do anything or they're anxious or whatever symptoms they're experiencing. And so it's walking back and saying, wait a second, we need to have some education here. And then, oh, we're going to work on your communication about this particular issue within the relationship. So it has greatly impacted my practice. 
Tell me a little bit about episode one. Episode one, uh, our, of course, season two um, launched here in January. Um, your first episode is live. Um, it's about ovulation and um, kind of a unique guest, I think, in a way. It's a recurring guest on Flow, but a unique relationship to you. Tell us a little bit about episode one and your relationship yes. um, with Michelle in particular. Yeah, so Michelle and I go way, way back. Um, we're going to keep talking about Camp Bold Eagle here in Michigan. It so. always goes back to summer camp. <laughs> it always, always. In the bleeding disorder community, <laughs> I just want to reiterate, it all goes back to summer camp. We always. See it always. is such a theme. Um, it's, and it's a huge <laughs> theme in my life. Uh, I so, know, me too. Such a theme. So Michelle was um, my camper at one point. And, and I just have this distinct memory of, our so our campsite is not huge, but I have a very vivid memory of Michelle and her last year as a camper and having this conversation in front of our our office that overlooks this beautiful lake. And we just she was just always this amazing person. And then she moved on up and I moved on up and we're, you know, we've got a little bit of an age difference. So I was gone and she was still at camp, but we have always kept in touch. And I think most people, most camp people will say the same is that camp is like family. And so even if you don't see them for a multitude of years, then it's still very close and the connection is so deep. And so it's following Michelle through her journey and her, she is following mine and being connected through social media or random events where we're, you know, we're having a birthday party and she's there. We have a holiday party and she's there and I'm there with our children now, which is just wild to be like, but we were just at camp. Like it was literally just a minute ago where you were 12 and I was 16 or whatever the age difference was at the time. And now she's having, you know, she has started her family. I've started mine. And it's kind of this really amazing experience to have and special bond. One of the things that struck me about your friendship with Michelle is that you do talk about these issues. You Mm -hmm. have something, obviously... that bonds you with ble- your bleeding disorders, even though they're they're different. Mm-hmm. Um, for our listeners that maybe feel a bit isolated or can't even fathom maybe the the value of having someone who understands, tell me a little bit about the importance for you and the the value of having Michelle as a friend to talk about <laughs> menstruation, painful ovulation, some of these things that we don't talk about. Right, right. So what's beautiful about Michelle uh, is that she's very open, I think, on her social media about what she's going through. She's definitely an open book as a woman in the community with a bleeding disorder and her struggle. So our conversations have generally been, and we're both busy moms, right? So they tend to be through a texting, whether whether it's Facebook or yeah. Instagram or whatever, and we're kind of commenting on our stories or messaging back and forth and um, kind of just watching her journey and being able to be like, hey, so you're switching doctors. I had this experience with this doctor. I love her. This is why. And like this long paragraph, I'm like, she's amazing. You're going to love her. It's going to be okay. We're like supporting her through that. And then talking to each other about painful ovulation. And um, because that wasn't something I experienced until after I had my daughter uh, mm-hmm. and noticing that other people like that was a thing and not knowing that. Yeah. Right. That it, again, I'm very close to 40. I didn't know that was a thing until I had my daughter. And so how do I, how do I go this long where I didn't know that that was something that could happen. And then seeing her within the community, also having those issues and being able to be like, what are you doing about it? How do you feel like, 
What's your go-to? How And just checking in, like, hey, how are you doing as a person, as a mom, as a partner, right? Because it impacts um, all of your life. That's so great. Yeah. Thank you for being here today. One kind of follow-up, last wrap-up question. Sure. In your opinion, you know, why do you think it's important for women in the bleeding disorder community to listen to flow? And also maybe some men that are listening that Mm. are connected, have um, partners, wives, spouses, um, the women in their life. Why is it important for both menstruators and non-menstruators to be more educated and I think more comfortable in talking about menstrual health? Yeah. Well, I think you hit that right on the head, right? Is that we want to create comfort and normalcy. Mm. Like, and I also want to give you language. I want to help you when I want to educate, I want to give you language and I want to normalize. And so through our episodes, we're going to be doing that. Like we're going to sit down and chat and you get kind of get to hear the insights of how we're thinking and how we're feeling, which not everyone gets to do, um, whether you're partnered or not that like, if you don't sit around with your girlfriends talking or your friends, it doesn't have to be, you know, one or the other or any then you, you get the insight to that. And like, let's normalize it. Let's, let's make it something that we always talk about and nothing to be embarrassed of. And it's going to be educational and you're going to get language and you're going to hopefully then be like, oh, this is normal or this is more typical. And this is how they handle that issue. Maybe I can use that in my life too. Or you can reach out, right? Because I'm going to be you know able to, to chat with people and you can reach us and it's important so that we can normalize it and make it part of your regular conversation, whether you are someone by yourself or you're partnered, because it's going to happen for most people, right? So let's talk about it and not be ashamed or, or scared of that. Here, here. Here, here. Thank you for coming on Bloodstream. We are so excited to have you on the Flow team. I personally am so excited to work with you here in season two. It's going to be great. So thank you again. And listeners, please check out episode one of Flow is live. Um, You can find it on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you get those podcasts. It's also on bloodstreammedia.com. And make sure you subscribe so you can get every episode the day it's released. Sarah, thank you again for being here. Thanks for having me, Amy. Thanks to Sarah again. And of course, shout out to hemophilia camps around the country and around the globe. Greatest place on earth. Hey, before we get over to Patrick's interview with Jim, want to uh, bring around another Tribeca Communications shout out. This one's a little different. Get ready for it. Get ready for it. Tribeca Communications is recruiting people who are 18 years and older with moderate to severe hemophilia B. Hemophilia B and caregivers of children ages 1 to 17 years old with hemophilia B without active inhibitors to be a part of a market research survey. You'll be asked to complete a 40-minute online questionnaire related to the management of hemophilia, and you'll be compensated $90 for your time. Wait a minute. Here on behalf of the A community, we're getting gypped 10 bucks. I'll, I'll, I have nothing, I have no communication or connection to the hemophilia B community, but I'll be on team heme B. George. Psyched about the 90 bucks. I have a bone to pick with you, George. If you are interested, and I I don't know, maybe we should like make it a thing like hemophilia B again. Anyway, anyway, (laughs) if you're interested in participating, please email George Palakis. I think it's Palakis, George. You did. You were very confident, at least. That's a step in the right direction. I don't know. At GJP 
at TribecaCom.com. We'll put it in the program notes. Wow, we'll put you, it in the program you notes. should do that every time. <laughs> <laughs> hey, now let's go on over to Patrick and Jim. All right, joining me now is blood brother Jim Mueller. He is here to talk a bit with me about business and finance and living with hemophilia. Jim, good afternoon. How are you today? I'm good, Patrick. Very good. Thank you. So help our listeners appreciate uh, who you are a little bit and who they're going to be hearing from today. Give us a little bit of your background in the bleeding disorders world as well as in the business and finance world. Well, I appreciate it, and I'm, I'm honored to do that. Um, I was born in 1962 at a time when Factor was really just beginning to, it was even cryo back then. Mm-hmm. Uh, and my family has a history of hemophilia. Uh, my mother and father both have been very supportive and growing up in grade school and things like that, I unfortunately had an inhibitor, which I mm. know some people sure still suffer from. And we, mm-hmm. our doctor at that time did not want to give us uh, factor products to save them for an emergency, which was not the best strategy at that time. But my brother and I made it through our teens and learned how to enjoy life a little bit with this disease. And then I did go to college. I was fortunate enough to have some financial help with that and finally got a master's degree only because I I just didn't have enough of a background, master's in business uh, in my bachelor degree. Went to the University of Oklahoma and really have been involved in the hemophilia community on and off since since I was born. Uh, I had an uncle that was very active and my brother, I'm fortunate enough to still have him. And we, we live here and we had a small business to get into, and it has been my primary life's work, which is financial planning, for lack of a better a better term. But I do like it, and it's changed a lot. So, Well, are there two or three important principles that maybe haven't changed over the years that are just financial planning, management 101 kind of things that people with hemophilia or, or von Willebrand disease just need to know about? Absolutely. And this is, again, my opinion, but it's what I was taught. The first key is to develop a very good budget and monitor that budget every month if you can, or frankly, even every day if you can. I've been on a, you know, none of us make as much money, I think, as we would like. And so if you're on a limited Mm -hmm. income, you have to really to save. And that's the second key is to be saving something out of every uh, or almost every income you have or, excuse me, investment you have uh, or cash that you have. And after that, you can pick a lot of different, from a lot of different investments, all the way from investing in a family business or uh, getting into the stock market. The one third lesson that I think I've learned the most and is critical, diversification. You certainly don't want to have, you don't want to have too much risk in one area for long-term savings and investment. And there's a very pretty easy way to do that. And obviously computers have helped us do that immensely. But to answer sure. your question, I I would have to say the budget, saving, and learning about investments, and then uh, number three, <clears throat> monitoring those. And the, the real key to the end of this is, you know, we are living longer and I never thought I needed a plan for retirement. Never thought I'd make it mm. to retirement. And uh, lots of folks are doing that now. So 
that's to some degree my interest in this. Jim, you mentioned financial planning in there. What exactly is a financial plan? Great question. It is, in my opinion, it's a written, can be detailed or it can be not de- not as detailed, depending on what kind of person you are. And it is a written plan <laughs> that you adapt to and review at least yearly. And you have some benchmarks in that financial plan that you try to hit each and every year. And you you don't even, I, I don't recommend, well, depends on the situation. You don't need to pay somebody to do your financial plan. I know a lot of life agents and insurance agents and even um, stockbrokers, you know, they'll charge a fee for that. And <clears throat> frankly, I mean, I was a life insurance agent, so I know, and did a lot in securities. A lot of them are charging too high of a fee, in my opinion, for what you get. Hmm. Because the computers now can help us do, and I use E-Trade, a Nerd Wallet. Those are, and, and we use Excel a lot in our in our practice. But financial plan is pretty simple, written down, reviewed every year, and you you need to find the platform or the person. Person could be you that's going to update and double check the numbers each each and every quarter, so to speak. Sure. That makes sense. And you mentioned in in the beginning uh, about the underlying principles, the importance of saving. What are some of the best ways that somebody can save for their future? Boy, the discipline of investing something every either pay period or every, I was on disability for a while, every disability check, every, every anything <laughs> of, of income coming in. Uh, I would highly recommend that it go directly to the bank or to your whatever you choose to invest in. So it, you know, it, it doesn't get into your hands. Uh, just an automatic, monthly, regular investment. You would be amazed, particularly if you start young, twenties, uh, thirties, what that can grow into at your retirement. Even if you have a, some bad years of investment return, and I've seen how diversification really can help your overall return and kind of not insure you, but keep the losses to uh, where they're not insurmountable, so to speak. Mm. And I, well, that's, uh, that's what I would recommend is regular monthly saving and maybe tax deferred is often a good, a good way to do it, to not have to pay taxes as it's growing. And we can get into the, not today, but the vehicles that can do that. And it, it really is amazing if you leave it there, say five years. Uh, for some people, it doubles. That's an aggressive rate of return. But for most of us, in seven years, it, for every hundred dollars we put in, it doubles in seven years. If you keep hmm. it in, money markets are a strange place right now. But I mean, the returns are a bit different than they have been historically. But it's it's pretty amazing to see how that compounding interest works uh, for people. All of us, it will work for. Now, what about a health savings account? What what are those? And how do you think about those when it comes to saving money and planning for the future? What's the benefit of an, of an HSA? Huge benefit. It allows a person to invest in a fund or set aside a savings account that you can reduce your ordinary income from, which is a little bit confusing. It, it shouldn't be, but it's just you're lowering your taxable income, and it goes into that account, and you you have to use it for 
and there's a list of all the health-related issues that you can use it for, but you, you have to use it for that. It can't. You don't have to use it or lose it like you used to do cafeteria plans. or it, it rolls with you to the next year or the year and the year and the year. And the entire time it's there, you can have an earning interest. And prob- in my opinion, you probably should. But it's a great... Uh, it's a great vehicle to help lower your taxable income. Real quickly, there's another account, and there are several ways to do this, depending on your individual situation. But there's a thing called an ABLE account that is a federal mm-hmm. program that allows you to do that also uh, in a little bit of a different way. It's actually truly deductible mm-hmm. from and helping you save money. And it's all for, it's actually not for medical expenses. It's something you can when you find out you have a handy or an illness, put money in it and it, it, it'll be there as long as you want it to be there for any, any use. So we try to keep up on those and they're very, very valuable for those of us that have larger medical expenses. I would say hemophiliacs qualify for larger, <laughs> uh, larger expenses than many, than many other diseases. So, Jim, for someone who's either recently finished school or training and are ready to to start a career or for someone who's in a transitional period and they're looking to embark on a new career path or maybe for the first time work for an employer if they were previously self-employed employer benefits and the, and the or employee benefits rather uh, are are something important for people to be aware of what should someone be looking at when they're considering a new job, when it comes to the benefits that go with that job? What are some of the most important benefits for people to be mindful of when thinking about financial health? Boy, another great question. It it really is pretty simple, but if it's a, let me just say this, if it's an employer that's offering you a job with enough income, some people do their own benefits. That's a smaller employer. A larger employer is usually, by the law, considered 50 or 100 and above. And medical insurance still is. It used to be a fairly different animal because you didn't have the, I'm going to say Obamacare, for lack of a better term, to fall back on. I won't get into all the horror stories of the, you know, of what private insurance used to be. But now, sure. I would look at, frankly, for the saving vehicle, a 401k that is matched by the employer is a good, a very important uh, vehicle for saving, tax-deferred saving, saving on taxes. Life insurance for many of the hemophiliacs, or for me, I'm sorry, I, I use that term describing myself. But for example, when, when I was born, there was no way to get any kind of life insurance, personally, or the only way to get it was through your employee benefit package. So life insurance, 401k, disability insurance is very useful for times that you have surgeries or I think it. another person that I was talking to said, you know, an ABLE account or an HSA account is a wonderful way to have money there for when you're recovering from a surgery, a joint mm. replacement, let's say. But other employee benefits, obviously the medical's huge. That's almost a subsidiary subject in and of itself. Sure. So a couple of other things that, well, there's a lot of things that employees are starting to do with leave and with, uh, they're even 
bringing in, you can choose it from a cafeteria of products. They'll have vision, dental. You know, we all know how important dental is for, for many of us. Several other new, new type of employee benefits. But the keys, frankly, the key for me was disability insurance, medical insurance, life insurance. You know, I want to leave something to my family. And I do want to quickly say for those families that are newly dealing with hemophilia, there are several companies now that are issuing life policies individually, particularly for if you have a son or daughter that's born currently uh, up until they're probably through their mid-30s and 40s, those policies are getting issued now. And that never used Mm. to happen. Uh, But to answer your question, the only other employee benefit you need to really, I feel like is important, that doesn't mean other ones aren't, but that they adhere to the COBRA. COBRA is a big deal. And all larger companies have to do that. So that's a, a great question. And it'd be wonderful if we could all get jobs that, that had that, because it's very, very useful to someone that hasn't been able to get anything on their own privately. Sorry to ramble on that. Certainly. No, no, no. I mean, as you said, it's an important topic. So we're coming up on the end of our time. You already addressed this, but I want to ask it again. Who can help somebody with financial planning? And I'm thinking right now about listeners who may be like me and there's intimidation around finances and overwhelm around finances and uncertainty about what to do. And and maybe I made an investment that didn't go well and now I feel gun shy about doing it again. And what if I fail and fear creeps in? So someone like me could benefit from having uh, the right kind of expert, so to speak, available to help me think all this through. Is that a financial planner? Because to the point you made earlier, it sounds like a, a, a financial planner, formally speaking, isn't necessarily always necessary. But I, I'm just curious to know, what, what's your response to that? Well, the, the marketplace is changing pretty dramatically. But to answer your question specifically for those of us, you know, who are interested in uh, or have hemophilia, there are some government agencies that will help you prepare a financial plan a good life insurance agent that doesn't charge you $2,000 or $2,500. Most of us don't have a large enough estate to warrant, in my opinion, warrant that kind of a fee up front uh, or that kind of a fee ever. But uh, some stockbrokers, and then there are a lot of people that are calling themselves financial planners that uh, you can check credentials, uh, a website Mm. that I'm just going to quickly give out, and it's important to check on people. Uh, is FINRA.com, and you can look up a broker or a life insurance agent. But I think fundamentally, I'm with you that even if you don't have a lot of knowledge, it it does rest with your with you and your responsibility. You can go to E-Trade, you can go to Charles Schwab, and they will, depending on your asset level, it does depend on your asset level and your income level as to who they might recommend. But I would Always search around, look around, ask around. There are better, much better ways that you can do it these days. Several computer programs that, frankly, will do it all for you. If you mm-hmm. can fill it's more. It's important to give good information to. You know, money is not an emotional thing. It shouldn't be because it's just the dollars and your investment returns and your taxes. But we know how emotional it can be. It's been for me during my life. And, you know, if you've had a bad investment, that's why diversification is so critical. 
I put too much money into my family business and everybody's situation is different. Such a great question, Patrick. And I wish I had an easy answer. I, I The only thing I would reiterate is searching, checking on reputations and maybe starting to educate yourself on, on what you can do on your own because it has changed dramatically. Jim Mueller, blood brother, MBA holder, financial planner himself. How can people get in touch with you? If somebody has a question or they'd like to reach out to you in particular, what's the best way to do that? Thank you, Patrick. I have an email. It's J-I-M-M-Y-6-2-M-U-E-L at gmail.com. And then we're developing a website for for this company. But the phone number is 405-397-8259. I'm here in Oklahoma City. And I'm very grateful for for you taking your time, and I hope I gave some knowledge that's useful. Again, everybody's situation is individual, and feel free to contact me. I would I would encourage the parents of people that just got diagnosed with hemophilia or have a family history of it and have kids with hemophilia. Now's the perfect time to set up something for their children, and they will not be denied like we were so many times because health is so much better. And I hope that's a that's that's a good thought. I think. Yeah, that's wonderful, and uh, very generous of you to offer to people to reach out to you. Thank you for all the information today. It's an important topic. We probably don't talk about it enough. We definitely don't here on Bloodstream. So thanks for coming on and spending some time talking the f- financial health with me, Jim. I appreciate it. I appreciate you. Thank you, Patrick, very much. I appreciate you guys. Thanks again to Jim, Sarah, and Dr. Dima Kelly for contributing to today's episode. Amy Board, what can listeners look forward to on the next one? What's next? Well, we have a Let's Talk segment yeah. with Joshua Bragg, which will be the greatest thing ever. It's always my favorite episode when we have. Thing ever. Wow. Guys, get Let's ready. Talk. February 25th, the it greatest is. thing. It is very, I don't mean to distract. It is very, very good. OMG. And it will be uh, right around Rare Disease Day. So yeah. we'll celebrate that and it, it'll, it'll be great. We've got good stuff. Good stuff. Zebras unite. Zebras unite. It's a stripes thing. Rare disease day. It's a stripes thing. It's a stripes thing. Great. Maybe we'll talk about that. That'll be part of the content. We're doing some of the content producing right now. What's the deal with the zebra? Great. Uh, With that, that is all for this episode. Reminder to subscribe to the Bloodstream Podcast wherever you listen. Share this episode with friends, family, colleagues, and the next episode where we'll talk about Rare Disease Day and zebras and Josh (laughs) will be here to talk mental health and who knows what else. That will go live on February 25th. If you have a bleeding disorders or healthcare topic that you'd like us to discuss more, please email us at mailbag at bloodstreammedia.com. Also, if you have a guest or an expert that you're dying to hear from, you want to inquire about storytelling or casting opportunities for Bloodstream's podcast or Believe Limited's films, please email us at mailbag at bloodstreammedia.com or connect with us on social media. You'll find Bloodstream Media on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or you can follow Amy. That's me or You're Patrick. Amy. That's, That's me. Him. I'm that one. On Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or LinkedIn. We're both on LinkedIn. (laughs) (laughs) Uh. Uh, I am your host, Patrick James Lynn. And I am your other host, Amy Borg. Until next time, take self-care of yourself. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye.